You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on Trinity Sunday, May 27, 2018. A reading from the Gospel of John, the third chapter, beginning at the first verse. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today is Trinity Sunday, our annual chance to talk about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in one God. Now, many sermons like this begin with an illustration to try and explain how something can be three in one and one in three. And I think these illustrations are usually more helpful at explaining what the Trinity is not than what the Trinity is. So let's start with a couple of them, not as explanations of what the Trinity is, but as explanations of what the Trinity is not. So first of all, an egg. You may have heard that an egg is a way to explain the Trinity because it has three parts. It has a shell, it has a yolk, and it has an egg white. The problem with this is that without each of those parts, the trinity, or the the egg, is not a whole egg. If you have just the yolk and the egg white, it has no substance because there's no shell to hold it together. It's, It's not an egg. If you have just the yolk, but not the other two parts, it's not a whole egg. And God, the trinity, is not made up of three parts that come together to form one whole. Each of the members of the Trinity is fully God, is all of God. 
So the Son is all of God, the Father is all of God, the Spirit is all of God. So three wholes come together to make one whole. It doesn't work by mathematics, but it does work because this is God we're talking about and not, not human understanding. Second illustration is water, H2O. Water exists in three different forms. When you put water on the, on the stove to make tea, it turns into steam or water vapor. When you stick it in your freezer, it turns into something solid, and we get ice. And in between, we have liquid water that we drink. And so all of it is H2O. All of it is one thing, one, one substance, but it's in three different forms. It's in ice and steam and liquid, liquid water. The problem with this is that the Trinity is not one God in three different forms, presenting himself in different ways depending on the situation, like the creator, the redeemer, and the sanctifier. God is three distinct persons who are together one God. So this is hard to understand. It's hard to get our brains around. God is so much bigger than we are that he just gives us a little glimpse of the reality of who he is. And he reveals that little glimpse to us, telling us that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet not three gods, but one God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. And they are not three gods, but one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. And yet each one of them is God. Three in one, and one in three. The glorious Trinity. So I'm going to stop any further attempt to explain the Trinity, lest I get myself into one of the early church heresies. And instead we're going to talk not so much about how the Trinity is possible, but what the Trinity means to our lives. Why does the Trinity matter? What is good about this doctrine, aside from confusing us? And here's what's good about it. In the first letter of John, he says twice that God is love. God is love. Before God created the earth, and the sun, and the Milky Way, and all the rest of the universe, there was just God. God. Alone. Nothing else. God created everything that is out of nothing. It's not like God took some Play-Doh, and he took the Play-Doh, and he formed it, and molded it into, into the different things that we have. There was nothing. And God spoke, and all of it came into existence. So before anything existed, there was just God. But if you think about it, love implies a relationship. Think about a, a poor guy stuck on a desert island somewhere, and he's gone ahead, he's picked a bouquet of wildflowers that he just happened to find on the desert island. He arranges them nicely, and he looks for someone to give them to, and there's no one. It's kind of a sad picture for a Valentine's Day sort of a, a situation, because love requires two parties. It requires a lover and a beloved. A lover and a beloved. So, who did God love before the creation of the universe? The answer is God. The answer is God. One theologian named Daryl Johnson 
uh, says that in the deepest ministry, in the deepest mystery of his being, God is an intimate relationship, a fellowship, a community of love. God is a relationship, a fellowship, a community of love. And there's an early church word that they use to describe this relationship that is God. And that word is perichoresis. It's a big, big word, perichoresis. But what it means is mutual indwelling or mutual interpenetration. If you look at the, the symbol that we have on the, the screen this morning, it's a, it's a symbol of the Trinity. And you can see how it has these three distinct points to it, but if you follow the line as it goes, it's just flowing in and out of itself. And so you can see three distinct pieces of it, three distinct uh, points of it, and yet it's all one symbol. It's all flowing together, and you see that circle around it is sort of a, a symbol of unity. This is not a perfect illustration by any means of the imagination, but it is kind of a, a nice illustration of perichoresis. And this perichoresis comes from two words, peri, uh, which means around, and choresis, which is the same word from which we get choreography or dance. And so you can think of it as a circle dance, a dancing around, a dancing in and out of one another. And that's kind of like a little glimpse in our limited way of the Trinity, of their relationship with one another, in and out of one another. Three distinct persons, one God. Wonderful relationship. Perfect relationship. And the very word Trinity speaks to this. Tri-unity. Tri meaning three and unity meaning unity. Three and one, one and three. And so God, before the creation of all that is, was certainly not lonely or bored before he created the universe. He was infinitely satisfied by the community of the Godhead. There wasn't anything that he needed. He didn't need to create the world. He wasn't lacking anything. He didn't do it out of a sense of duty. So when we think about that, how God was completely satisfied in and of himself in this relationship of the Trinity, why did God make the world? Why did he create anything if he was perfectly satisfied in and of himself? I think it was an overflowing of divine love. God's love was too good to keep to himself. And so he makes the world for love because love is something that grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Fulton Sheen said in the 1930s, why then did God create a world? God created the world for something like the same reason that we find it hard to keep a secret. Good things are hard to keep. Why therefore could not he by free impulsion of his love, let love overflow and bring new worlds into being. God could not keep, as it were, the secret of his love, and the telling of it is creation. So God loves. He loves so much. He loves so perfectly that that love bubbles up and overflows, and what happens is creation. We look in Genesis and we see in the first chapter, how God creates everything. He creates light and darkness. He creates land and sea. He creates everything that is, and we can see a glimpse of the Trinity working even in the creation. We see the initiative of the Father, 
We see the word of the Son, the divine word, the Logos, speaking things into being. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. We see animals and plants. We see fish and birds. We see elephants and tomatoes. All of it comes into being. And the very last thing God makes is people, men and women. In particular, one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And when God creates them, he says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Each and every person is made in the image of God. And that's why each and every human life has value, because each and every human life is made in the image of God. Every single one. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It's kind of a big concept. It's kind of a big thing to think that you are made in God's image, that you are intended to image God in this world. And it does mean, in fact, lots of things. But there's one particular thing that I want to focus on this morning. One important aspect that I would like to highlight. And that's that God made us for community. And he made us for love. Because God is a community of persons, and God is love. And so to be made in the image of God, to reflect God, to be God's image in creation, is to be like God in that sense. We were made for community and made for love, just as God is a community and God is love. We were made to reciprocate God's love. God loves us. He created us, and he loves us, and he desires for us to love him back. And so we were made for that reciprocal relationship with God, God loving us and we loving God. But we are also made to push that love outwards towards others, just as God did for us. Just as the the beautiful love, the beautiful community of the Trinity overflowed with love and it poured out and created everything that is, so also he desires for our love with him to spill out to those around us. And we can see this in a couple of different relationships. One really interesting relationship is the relationship of the family, where a husband and a wife come together And out of their coming together, out of their love, children come. And so the love of the husband and the wife pours out into children, and new life is created, new life is born. But we see this also in adoption. We see it in evangelism. We see it in the fellowship of the church. All of these are examples of God's love pushing out through us towards others. If we look a little further in the book of Genesis, we get to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so for this reason, God creates Eve. God realized that it wasn't good for Adam to be there all by himself. That he needed not just God, but he needed another person like him to love. 
because his love was not just to be reciprocating back to God, it was supposed to pour outwards towards others. And so God says it is not good that the man should be alone. If you think about uh, various punishments that can happen to people, perhaps one of the, the harshest ones is solitary confinement. And there have been people, psychologists, who have studied solitary confinement. They've interviewed hundreds of people who have endured solitary confinement. And what they've found is that solitary confinement can cause a specific psychiatric syndrome characterized by hallucinations, panic attacks, overt paranoia, diminished impulse control, hypersensitivity to external stimuli, and difficulties with thinking, concentration, and memory. Some inmates lose the ability to maintain a state of alertness, while others develop crippling obsessions. That's what happens to us when we're separated from community, when we're separated from other people, when we don't have any other people to share life with and to love. Now that's an extreme example, but I can see it even in my own life. There are some days when I have to do very quiet work, like writing a sermon. And so I'll sit in my office, sometimes all day, sometimes not talking to a single other person, just reading books and looking at my computer and typing. That's right. And my wife can tell a difference at the end of the day when I've come home from a day like that as compared with a day when I've spent time with people. Because when I come home from a day like that, of that quiet work, of that introverted work, and it, I love it, I like being alone, I'm an introvert by nature. But when I come home from a day like that, she notices that I look tired. I look kind of lethargic. I have trouble re-engaging with the community of my family. And it takes me a while to get back into a social mode because I get kind of withdrawn and, and into myself. And you may have noticed that in your own life when you spend a day just completely alone. We call it going stir-crazy, right? Going stir-crazy. Think about the greatest commandment. There were people coming to Jesus. We see this recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. People coming to Jesus and asking him all kinds of questions. But in the Gospel of Mark, a scribe comes to Jesus, and he sees that he's been answering questions really well. Jesus has been ask, answering the questions of the people really well. And so he decides to give him a really tough question to see how he handles it. And this is what the scribe asks Jesus. He says, which of all the commandments is the greatest of the commandments? Which is the most important of all the commandments? And here's what Jesus responds. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But then he goes on, he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, than these two. This scribe was, was talking to Jesus about a debate that was going on in the rabbi community of that time about which is the greatest commandment. Rabbis love to have debates, and so they'd, they'd have these talkings back and forth about uh, what's the right answer to this, what's the right answer to that. 
And they had, they had numbered out 613 individual commandments from the Old Testament. If you look at the first five books of the Bible, the, the books of Moses, the Torah, you can find 613 individual laws or commandments. And so this scribe was saying to Jesus, look at those 613 and tell me which one of those is the most important one. And Jesus says, love God. And then right next to it, he says, love your neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Everyone else. Every person we meet is our neighbor. So Jesus says the most important things, the most important commandments are love God and love your neighbor. And he says that the whole of the law can be summed up in those two things, loving God and loving our neighbor. Now, the rest of the commandments inform us on how we love God and how we love our neighbor. They give us some practical steps so we we know what love looks like. We know what love is as a concrete concept. But at its basis, the two greatest commandments are simply to love God and love our neighbor. We also see in, uh, in John, the first letter of the Apostle John, this. Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And here he's not so much talking about loving God, which he would recognize as important, but here he's talking about loving one another. Beloved, let us love one another. And he says if we aren't loving one another, then we obviously don't love God because God is love. And so to me, this gets at that notion that Christianity is about me and Jesus. That I can just be a Christian in my own room, all by myself, without anybody else. And it's just not true. Because we need the fellowship of believers. We need other people to love in the fellowship of God. We must love one another because God is love. But there's a problem. And the problem is not with love. It's with this notion of being in the image of God. And it's not so much a problem with being in the image of God. It's the fact that the image of God has been tarnished in our lives by sin. The image of God has been tarnished in our life, in our lives by sin. When we look at both the passage from Romans that we read today as well as the gospel passage, what we see is both readings are showing the process of people being drawn into relationship with God. But to be drawn into relationship with God indicates that they or we have been estranged from God. Adam and Eve were in perfect face-to-face relationship with God. It was the reality that they lived in day in and day out. God made this beautiful world, this beautiful garden for them to live in. And it says in the scriptures that God walked with them in the cool of the evening. You can picture a family on a walk. Our family likes to go on a walk in the evening to to walk the dog and get a little exercise. And we often walk down the the sidewalk holding hands with one another. Just on a family walk in the evening. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what it might have been like for God to be with Adam and Eve in those first days of creation. Perfect relationship. Perfect harmony. Perfect love. But then Adam and Eve do the one thing that God asked them not to do. They eat of the one tree 
in the garden that God said, do not eat of this tree. And that was the first sin. And it changed everything. From that point on, Adam and Eve could no longer be in the garden. They covered their nakedness because they were ashamed. And God said that they couldn't live there any longer because God is perfectly holy. And Adam and Eve were no longer holy. They were no longer able to be in the presence of God. It doesn't mean that God didn't love them anymore. God still loved them, but their relationship was broken, and they couldn't be directly in God's presence anymore. And so they were sent out of the garden, east of Eden, and there was an angel posted to guard the door, to guard the gate, with a sword flashing in every direction. Sin separated Adam and Eve from God. This was the first sin, and because of it, Adam and Eve were separated from God, and because of it, all of us have a propensity for sin that's been passed down from generation to generation ever since. Even my little baby, Caleb, who's only four weeks old, is a sinner. We're all bent towards sin. In the Catechism of the Anglican Church in North America, it asks the question right at the very beginning, what is the human condition? And it says, the universal human condition is that, though made for fellowship with our Creator, we have been cut off from Him by self-centered rebellion against Him, leading to guilt, shame, and fear of death and judgment. This is the state of sin. And the next question goes on to tell us what is sin. And it says, Sin alienates me from God, my neighbor, God's good creation, and myself. So the result of sin is alienation, is broken relationship. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with our neighbor, broken relationship even with ourselves. <coughs> sin separates us. It breaks us apart. And so if we were made for relationships and community and love, if that's what it means to be made in God's image, and if we're sinners and our sin alienates us from God and our neighbor, then we have a big problem because we're no longer able to fulfill the purpose for which we were made. Think about a sports car for a moment. A marvel of machinery, a marvel of engineering, designed for one purpose and one purpose only. Well, maybe two purposes. To look cool and to go fast. Right? That's why a sports car is created. But it only goes fast in the right conditions. It only goes fast when it accomplishes the purpose that it was, that it was built for, which is to go fast on a straight road. Maybe handle some curves on a paved road. But what happens if you take that sports car, take that Ferrari, take that Lamborghini, and you plop it right in the middle of a muddy cow field? a bumpy, muddy, sloppy cow field. What's going to happen to that sports car? You can step on the gas. You might even spin those wheels real, real fast and rev the engine, but that car is not going to go anywhere. It can't accomplish its purpose. And the same is true for us. When we are in the state of sin, and we all are, then we aren't able to accomplish the purpose for which we were created, which is love and community 
But God's love wasn't just in creation. God's love is also demonstrated in recreation, in restoration, in reconciliation. We read in the Gospel of John, perhaps the most famous verse in the whole of the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came into the world to restore our broken relationship with God. And in restoring our broken relationship with God, we begin to restore, God begins to restore our broken relationships with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbor. Jesus is the the key to that reconciliation. Jesus is the one who makes it possible because of his sacrifice of himself on the cross. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced for the only time in eternity what it was like to be separated from the perichoresis relationship of the Trinity. Up until that point, Jesus was living in perfect unity with God the Father and God the Son. One God, three persons. But when Jesus cries out from the cross, he takes on our sin. He takes our sin upon himself. And that sin, which separates us from God, separated him from God. And so for that moment, he experienced what it was like to be separated from God. And if you think about it, that must have been harder for him than all of the physical suffering that he went through. Jesus experienced our separation so that he could bring about our reconciliation. And this is what we receive when we put our faith in him. When we look at the two verses that come before John 3.16, we hear this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the love that you have in yourself, and we thank you that your love has spilled out to create us but also to restore us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to put our faith in you, that you would restore us, that you would heal us, that you would change the brokenness of our lives, the brokenness of our sin, and draw us back to you, that you'd heal our broken relationships with one another and help us to love one another as you have loved us and as you gave yourself up for us an offering, and a sacrifice. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. 
Thank you for listening. God bless you.